Before I pray, let me welcome those of you at the North Campus and those of you uh, Sunday morning downtown and a special welcome to the new Sunday evening service attenders and uh, another special welcome to all the pastors here for the, for the conference. Thank you so much for being with us. We are beginning again the series that we left off December 2009 on the Gospel of John. And we need to pray before we begin. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would dig down deep into our hearts and identify all pride all of our love affair with the praise of man and that you would, by your grace, kill it and deliver us from it and so bring us to a deeply rooted faith that is to a deep gladness in the God of grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the question I'm going to try to answer in this uh, sermon and from this text is what's the common root between the unbelief of the brothers of Jesus and the unbelief of the Jewish crowds? They look very, very different and they are both Unbelief, And when you see things that are both one thing and they look very, very much like different things, to dig down to the common thing that makes them one is very fruitful. I think this is exactly the question that John, the writer of the gospel, wants me to ask and answer. I think he threw it in my face, throws it in your face, because of what he says about his brothers. These are his half-brothers, sons of Mary and Joseph, what he says about their unbelief. It's really shocking. And I think he intentionally is shocking us. And it's not simply that they are unbelievers that shocks us, it's how they manifest their unbelief that is doubly shocking. And I think John knows it's doubly shocking and that's why I think I'm on to what he wants me to talk about. Let's read it, verses three through five. The brothers say to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. That's weird. That's really shocking. That's doubly shocking. It's shocking, first of all, that there is brothers. I mean, you know who this is. This is James. The others are less known. Joseph, Simon, Judas, not Iscariot. But James we know. James, the great leader of the church in Jerusalem after James 
the son of Zebedee was killed, James the writer of the letter. So everybody in John's atmosphere, while he's writing this, knows who James is. You don't have to dump, you don't have to bring up the dirty laundry. Just go away from that, and he doesn't. He, he says, James wasn't a believer. This is pretty far along in Jesus' ministry. He's not just telling us that. He's teaching us something about unbelief. That's what, he, that's what John is doing here. He's teaching us something about unbelief. And he teaches us it by shocking us first that it's James and the others, and secondly, well, what did they say that makes you think they're unbelievers? It didn't look like unbelief to me. What's the connection between verses 3 and 4 and 5? Leave here. Go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And Jesus says, that's unbelief. Because, they said this because, you see the verse 5? They said this because not even his brothers believed on him. So, doubly shocking. If they had said, we don't think you can do these miracles. We think it's all smoke and mirrors. We don't want to be associated with you. We're embarrassed by what you're doing. And Jesus had said, they said that because they're unbelievers. There would be nothing shocking at all about that. But this is shocking. We believe what you're doing is real. We love it that you're a miracle worker. In fact, we want you to go to Jerusalem and do it. We want all your disciples to see everything we've seen, so just go do it. And Jesus says, they said that because they were unbelievers. So we, we are on to something here. John didn't, he didn't write that thinking, that won't bother anybody. The other kind of unbelief in this text is the Jewish crowds. So we've, we've seen the brothers' manifestation of unbelief, weird as it seems, and now the other kind is the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem. They are so unbelieving, they want Jesus dead. Verse 1, middle of the verse, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Or look at verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And in response, they call him demon-possessed. This is not belief. This is not faith. This is unbelief. They want him dead, and when he says they want him dead, they say you're demon-possessed. This is not faith talking. This is easily recognizable unbelief. No shocks here at all. That's unbelief. Now... Their animosity had been awakened 
in chapter five. What Jesus had done in chapter five is hanging over this text. Remember what he did? He takes a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years and he, he says, what would you like me to do? And he says, I have nobody to take me down to the water. And, and Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and go. It happened to be the Sabbath when he said, rise and take up your bed and go. Look at verse 21 here in John 7. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses cannot be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So the second kind of unbelief is very different from the first kind of unbelief. Or is it? That's my question. Is it? They certainly look different. One unbelief is really excited that Jesus can work miracles. And he wants more, they want more miracles. This unbelief want more miracles worked where more people can see them. And the other form of unbelief hates these miracles, threatened by these miracles. Once these miracles stopped, they're willing to kill to get these miracles stopped. One is obvious and the other is not obvious. So my question is, how are they both unbelief? What's the common root that makes these two different looking plants, both of them unbelief? Because I want to know if I got that. There's something in here like that. Now before I answer it, let me tell you why this really, really matters for you, me, all of us. It matters because according to John, the writer, belief is how you get eternal life. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. Chapter 20, verse 31, these are written, this book is written so that you may believe, unlike my brothers, may believe, unlike those Jewish crowds, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. And we know he means eternal life because he says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes might not perish but have, finish it, eternal or everlasting life. And we know that everlasting life means no more wrath. That's what it means. I was under the wrath of God, and now I'm not. We saw that last week. 
Here it is again, chapter three, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So everybody's got wrath remaining on them. There's one way out, faith in Jesus. You think this doesn't matter that his brothers are not believing. They go to hell if they don't get this fixed. They stay under the wrath of God, which is resting upon the world because of sin. We have all dishonored God by our neglect and our half-heartedness and our indifference. And God made a way. God made a way from delivering us from the wrath of God. He sends his son to die in our place. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's God. Are you the Messiah? I who speak to you am he, John 4, 26. Are you the Lamb of God? Chapter one, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John knows that belief is the path to eternal life because belief is belief in Jesus and Jesus is God, Messiah, Lamb of God. He sent into the world to bear the wrath of God, forgive our sins, restore us to fellowship and have everlasting life. So James, you're on your way to stay under wrath at this point in my ministry. So it really matters that we get this right. It occurred to me at this point in my thinking about you that some of you at this point might be thinking, this would probably be the, I don't know, veteran Christians badly taught, that, oh, this is a sermon for unbelievers. Because you kind of set it up that way, didn't you? I mean, you've got to believe in order to have eternal life, and I've done that, so I have it, and so I will text somebody, find out how they're doing. Here's the problem with that thought. The only faith or belief that saves is persevering faith. The only faith that saves anybody is faith that lasts. How does faith last? Faith lasts by the word of God. This. Listen to the word of Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15:1. I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold it fast. Genuine saving faith lasts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God again and again and again till you're dead and no other way. So if you want your faith to last, you give attention to the word of God. 
every day, and especially when it is preached. Every believer needs the Word of God. Either it gets faith created or it gets faith sustained. We're all in one of those categories. Now back to my question. That was all for, why does this matter? Question, how are those two forms of unbelief the same? Or if they're both unbelief, what's the common root? And is it in you? Is it in me? This, is, this text for me, along with a few other connected texts in John, has proved to be since 1973, um, when this understanding first came to me, has proved to be one of the most powerful texts in my life indicting me again and again for this form of unbelief and calling me again and again to the kind of faith that happens when this is killed, okay? So if you think this is just interesting, it's more than interesting. Everybody in this room is infected with this kind of unbelief. And the question is, what's the root of your life? I'm going to give you four pointers to the nature of the brother's unbelief, since it's the puzzling one. The other one's obvious. This is the puzzling one. Four textual pointers to the nature of the brother's, James and the others, unbelief. Pointer number one, his brothers want him to go to Jerusalem, show his miracles to the world, but he refuses to go. He says, no. Then he goes. And John draws attention to the way he goes, which is different than the way the brothers wanted him to go. None of that's an accident. So let's read it, verses 3 through 10. Leave here and go to Judea, they say to Jesus, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 8. Drop to verse 8. Jesus says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. I love this gospel. John is so plain and so subtle. So he's just constantly screaming at me, listen up. (laughs) So what he's saying when he says, I'm not going up to the feast is, I'm not going up the way you want me to go up. That's what he means. I'm not going up the way you want me to go. You got a whole constellation of purposes and motives in mind. I'm not going. And then the other, I'm going my way. And I'm going to go my way to make a point. This desire of theirs to have him go is deeply defective. 
It's a defective desire. Going is not defective. But their whole thinking about why he's going and what they want to happen when he goes and what it would mean to them when it happens, that's all defective. It's sick. It's sinful. It's unbelieving. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go up and I'm going up to die. And you don't have that in the back part of your brain. You're not excited about that, that I'm going up to lose myself. I'm going up to become nothing in Jerusalem. I'm going up to be spit on and have my beard pulled and have people mock at me and laugh at me and I'm going to go like a lamb to the slaughter. You want to go? Number two, when Jesus goes public in Jerusalem, he goes public not with miracles but with teaching. And what he teaches when he goes public is that he's totally committed to God exaltation, not self-exaltation. This is not what his brothers want, and they don't believe. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man learning since he's never studied? And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You see how he's deflecting? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know the teaching is from God or whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Deflecting. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So yes, he went public. But he went public with a teaching that is seeking to deflect Godward the praises of the people. Verse 18, middle of the verse, let's get it again. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. The mark of truth, and I think we could generalize here, I won't spend time on it right now, but just whoever you know, the mark of truth, this is a true person, is God-exaltation, not self-exaltation. Or even better, God-exaltation at the expense of self-humiliation. That's the mark of truth. This person is true. You want to be a true person? They didn't. The brothers didn't. Jesus is choosing not to go up there and make a name for himself and get everybody to praise them and have his brothers on his coattails giving 
getting vicarious praises. It's our brother. That's our brother. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go up here and die. I'm going to be infinitely shamed. This is not what you want. You don't believe. Now, caution. Don't stumble. It's a good question, but don't stumble over the fact that in other places, Jesus does direct attention to his own glory. Okay. We all know this. Kenny was talking about it when he welcomed us. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's kind of out of sync here, right? That doesn't fit, does it? It does. Jesus is one of a kind. (laughs) He is the God-man. Me? I'm not that. (laughs) You should make a distinction. Jesus is one of a kind. He's a God-man. He must show us how humans live for the glory of God and not themselves. He must. He's human. He's the perfect human. He must show us. That's what humans do. They don't live for their own glory. They live for God's glory. Their joy comes not because it's rooted in self-exaltation, but God-exaltation. He's doing that here in chapter 7. But he's, he's God. Which means, I think I would put it like this. The very fact that he humbles himself, denies himself, accepts shame upon himself, and does not exalt himself is part of what deity in humanity is willing to do that makes the deity all the more glorious. So that when he is drawing attention to his own glory as he is in chapter 17, verse 24, let them see my glory, Father, Part of that glory as the God-man is that he has died for us. He's just laid it all down. He took everything like a lamb going to the slaughter is dumb. So we have this flavor of the perfect man. And then God united in him. And so, of course, we're going to feel the tension as sometimes he's so perfectly life-laying down and so other times saying things that would just blow your mind away like before Abraham was, I am. So don't stumble. Don't stumble over the fact that here... He is saying to his brothers, you don't believe in me because what I'm about to do, you're so far from loving that. You're so into my acclaim and my praise and my being exalted in Jerusalem as a miracle worker. You're going to be so blown away by what happens to me there. You're going to have to get saved to understand it. Pointer number three. Verse seven. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works 
are evil, you go up to the feast. They can't hate you. They hate me. We're not, we're not driven by the same passions. When they see mine, they seethe with anger. When they see yours, they don't. Why? Brothers, it's because, he says to them, it's because you are driven by the very thing they live for, the praise of man. They can't hate you. You're one of them. They will smell, whether it's got a religious flavor or a non-religious flavor, they will smell. You're just like us. They're not going to get upset at that. But when they smell me, they come apart. You don't indict them. Your life doesn't indict them. My life totally indicts them. They want to kill me. They don't want to kill you. Why? You're just like them. You're driven at root by the same thing they're driven by. Pride. The praise of man, the love of approval. Hungry, hungry to be liked and praised and admired. It's the universal human craving. So they're not going to hate you. They're, they're going to hate me. The mark of falsehood, he who is, seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. What's the mark of falsehood? Wanting your own glory over God's. That's what evil is, doing things for your own glory and not God's. You are my brothers. You want me to become more and more famous. You want to be the brothers of a popular and powerful person so that you can share in his popularity and power. But your heart cannot see or submit to how radically I will choose rejection and reviling and persecution and scorn and suffering and death. You can't see it. You can't submit to it because of your love affair with the praise of men. Getting close to anybody? See why this is so relevant for me? Last pointer, number four. Now, this one seals the deal for me that I'm on to it, that I'm not making any of this up. Because back in chapter 5, and I would invite you to just flip back a couple of pages. Back in chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, I have already seen this. Everything that's going on here in action is already said in chapter 5 explicitly in teaching. So I hope this just fixes it for you deep down. This is Jesus in chapter 5, verse 43. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now, just stop there. Feel the similarities. Why? Why, 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 would, they, why would they receive somebody who comes in his own name? Because he's just like them. You can smell when somebody's driven the way you're driven. And if you're in love with the praise of man and somebody else is, they don't make you feel bad at all. Good. We're joined together and get praised together. Mutual admiration society. I have come in my Father's name. I'm, I'm going to get on my face in Gethsemane and say, I would rather not suffer if there were any godly way around it, but... I am on my face and your will be done because I came here to glorify you. That's what it means to come in the Father's name. I came in my Father's name and you don't receive me. It's too indicting. It's too self-incriminating. You can't hang out with somebody like that very long. They make you feel guilty. If another comes in his own name... You'll receive him. Now, here's the key verse. How can you believe? Now the connection is made. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? You can't. That's how. See what Jesus is saying? You cannot believe in Jesus if your root desire is to be praised by other people. Don't hear me saying there's no battle with this. I admit it at the beginning there is, right? Don't, I'm not saying there's no battle. I'm talking root of your life. Spring of it all. And Jesus says in verse 44 of John 5, you cannot believe in Jesus if the root desire of your life is to be praised by other people. Why? Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. And if pride is at the root, faith can't be. They're not believers. They're not believers. James and the others are not believers because pride is at the root still. They haven't died yet. They haven't been born again. The root hasn't been severed. Faith, on the other hand, at its core, is a, a humble gladness in the God of grace. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And from his fullness, fullness of grace and truth, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, I think.
we have all received grace upon grace. It's verse 14 and 16. Pride is it's angry when grace starts encroaching because you know what grace is. You don't deserve anything, but I'm giving you everything. Pride hates that. Keep, I'm, don't tell me I don't deserve anything. I don't want to hear that. I want people to recognize something in me. I want them to recognize something in me and applaud it, praise it, write about it. And if you come telling me it's all of grace, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. So my answer to the question, what's with the brother's unbelief, is that they were at root lovers of the praise of men and not lovers of the grace of God. Grace had not become devastatingly beautiful to them. I think it would. I think they all got saved. I know James did. You can. Briefly, turn to the Jewish crowds for a moment as we move to it close. So, what's with the Jewish crowd? Is the root of their issue, their unbelief, the same? The brothers of Jesus pursued their joy through self-exaltation, even if it had to be vicarious in the miracle working of their brother. The Jewish crowds pursued it through law-keeping. Get the Sabbath right. The brothers boast in the miracles of their brother the crowds boast in keeping the law of God. In both cases, the root of joy, the root of significance, is the praiseworthy self, not the God of grace. That's what I believe is the common root. In both the root of joy, what makes this person at bottom really happy, what gives this person bottom line significance, answer, the self exalted, not the God of grace. That's the difference. And they're both that way. How do we know that about the, these crowds? They claim to know the law. They accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker for healing on the Sabbath. But look at verse 19. Jesus says to them at the end there, none of you keeps the law. We're the ones that are telling you, you don't keep the law. And Jesus says, none of you keep the law. Jesus' life and words are calling their whole understanding of law-keeping into question. Their way of finding 
acceptance and affirmation and approval and praise was crumbling in the presence of Jesus. Grace and truth, grace and truth. Law came through Moses, grace and truth, grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. And we all from his fullness are receiving grace upon grace and the law lovers and the law obeyers who are finding their meaning, their significance, their joy in this. I can do this, I do this are being terrified. We want him dead. The root is the same. For the brothers, the miracles of Jesus get them human praise. For the crowds, the miracles of Jesus threaten their human praise. Written over them both, like a great indictment is, how can you believe when you seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So, closing, how should you, how should you pray in view of this analysis that Jesus makes of unbelief in, in our hearts. How should you pray? We should pray that when we read of Jesus in the Gospels or when we hear about him in a sermon, we should pray that we would be able to say from the heart, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we do now receive pride-destroying, pride-destroying grace upon pride-destroying grace. The law doesn't destroy pride. The law is used again and again and again to buttress pride. What destroys pride most effectively is Christ crucified, looking into the eyes of those who despise him and want him dead because he calls their whole structure of meaning into existence and hear him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a pride killer. Don't you weep most often not over the majesty of God's judgment, though that's terrifying, but over the tenderness of God's offer? That's what makes us cry. And those tears, James and his brothers needed really badly, and uh, we do too. Because pride at its core is the rejection of the grace of God and a craving for human approval. And faith at its core is the despairing of any approval and the embrace of the God of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus, 
I love him. We here love him. We love him because he was true. He has always been true from all eternity. He was true. We love him because he is God. We love him because he came and was incarnate, the perfect man, God. We love him because he taught us like this. Nobody ever spoke like this man spoke. We love him because he opened our eyes to see his glory and sent his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We love him because he conquered our sin and conquered death and rose and reigns at your right hand. And we love him because he rules over us and is with us every day. And we love him because he's coming back. And we say, hasten the day, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, we plead, kill our pride. Kill our love affair with the praise of man and give us a readiness and a willingness for the joy that is set before us to endure the cross, despising the shame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.